evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. That's where we are, indeed. This is session number two of Till We Have Faces. Really excited to getting back into discussing Orwell's story. We're going to jump back in at chapter one, and I think we can get all the way into chapter four tonight. We'll see how we do. But first, I have a, uh, a, a very special announcement that I want to make. Um, indeed, it's really the method of the announcement that is super special because I am joined by a live guest who is going to help me with this announcement. Um, the announcement concerns space. So our space program, of course, uh, is Signum Portals to Adult Continuing Education. As many of you know, our space program contains uh, monthly modules for people to take to be able to learn the stuff that they love for fun. Um, our space program has been just delightful over the last two years, um, and uh, lots of plans are coming up and being made for the third year of space. So, um, uh, to tell you about some really exciting things that are uh, being planned uh, for space in the upcoming year, I am joined by a special guest. So, wait for it a second. I have to... There we go. Oop, no, that's not the one I want to take out. That's the one I want to take out because I want to bring on Sparrow Alden. Sparrow, welcome. Hello. Thank you for letting me share this announcement with you. Oh, yes, it is. Uh, hello, the people. <laughs> hello, the people. Indeed. So um, Sparrow is joining me here tonight. And Sparrow, you wanted to tell us about you guys. So Sparrow has been at the heart of our creative writing endeavors uh, in space for the last uh, for the last couple of years. Um, and it has been awesome. I have uh, uh, I, I known many people, some in my very own family who have been doing creative writing with Sparrow and others. And um, I, so I just I, I know that, th that there's been I've been really loving uh, watching this creative writing community growing in our space program. Um, and many of the folks who began taking classes have been teaching classes and leading discussions, and it has been growing and, and just altogether delightful. Um, but Sparrow, there, there, there's a, a big new project being planned for this coming year, yes? There is a big new project uh, beginning January of 2024, and I wanted to come on tonight so that people who are interested would have time do you know, that's plenty of time to like finish building the house and and editing whatever you need to clear the decks to start a new project in January, right? Right. Are right. we ready? Yes. Okay. As you know, we have been doing one month standalone modules. You take this, it's great. You get to finish your eight hours of of whether it's uh, writing science fiction or examining the different body problem or workshop and you're done. None of that has changed, but we have added value because some of us were saying, oh, wow, this class, Anatomy of a Scene with Julian Barr, would have been great right before the big revision class with Kate Connors. And I said, did someone just lay down a scheduling challenge? <laughs> Sparrow loves a good scheduling challenge. I love a good <laughs> scheduling challenge. So what we have done is arranged 12 of the modules in the logical order that if you begin with a blank screen and a pretty good idea, 
we'll talk about things in order. We'll practice writing, we'll examine, we'll revise all the way around so that by the time December rolls in, we're learning from Julian Barr how to pitch our book. It is called Novel in a Year. It's not NaNoWriMo, which is crazy fast paced. It's a nice year in a, a group of people who get to know each other. It is not a strict progression cohort. Right. So it's you, not like if you if you miss a month or something, you're out for the year or you have to commit to the every month for the whole year. That is absolutely correct. Let's say that you, you're working in a world that you have been writing in for a long time and you think that maybe um, module number three about world building is not going to be that useful for you. You hop out for that month and maybe take the other creative writing class that's mm -hmm. happening. We will be running... You, most months, there will be two creative writing choices, and one of them is a novel in a year track. So, um, I know people have heard me talk about how a story can be a seedling, which gets lots of nurturance and help and encouragement, and then it becomes a sapling when we do shaping and revision and and adding and examining whether something went the right way. And finally, it's a tree where we prune the stuff that turned out not to be useful, but we layer in uh, the, the gamma line and all of that. Um, so each four months, we treat your story. We're, we're specifically pointing our modules right. at a seedling story, a sapling story, and a tree story next fall. There are six different preceptors, many of whom you already know in space. And we have had so much fun working together, putting this, putting, putting this little adventure together. And it's called Novel in a Year. And I'm so excited because there are going to be the best stories written. What can I, Corey, I'm not, I can't read and talk at the same time so if there are any questions would you pass them on to me or if you have any of your own sure yeah absolutely so i, I so the one of the things that i'm really one of the reasons i'm really excited to see this happen is i know that one of the things one of the kind of questions right from the beginning one of the advantages of space was the lack of long-term commitment right people can come right. in and take a month-long right. module when they right. can and you know you can't necessarily commit to months and months on end but, you know, mm -hmm. you can take modules here and there. And that's been something mm -hmm. that's been a real advantage, I know, to the program for many people. But one of the challenges with that is that it means that, uh, you know, a, a project, you know, a, a learning project of any kind, right, that takes a long time to develop, it's hard to do in those little one-month bits. And so this is, a, this is a really fun evolution of the creative writing program. So instead of just, as you say, doing, you know, uh, either general or targeted workshops here and there, um, learning different things and gaining different tools. Um, to be, I, I, for many people I know, the idea of what it would look like, what it takes to really develop a big story and, and to be able to get guidance um, and input as you're developing uh, you know, a, a big story, as you're writing something novel length instead of, um, you know, instead of writing short stories. Um, I, 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 that's uh, that's a big project, and that's something that would take more than just a one month, uh, you know, a, 
a one month workshop in order to get it, support with. It, it really would. And I think the most important thing that I've learned in the first two years of space is how important that writing community is. Yes. Having yes. people who know your work, whom you trust to have good judgment, who you trust to treat your work kindly when you need kindness and to keep treating your work kindly when you still need, when you need to do some pruning. <laughs> um, right. So we hope very much that many people will follow along the whole novel in a year. And if that means you're there for 10 of them, but you have to miss like April and May for whatever reason, fine. Right. Also, if you're taking other things or, or and all of a sudden you say, oh, there's Kate's revision course. I want to jump in in July for Kate's revision course because I know how good that is. Right. Fantastic. People can drop in. People can drop out. But the, I'm sure there will be a core group which carries through. Someone comes in, someone comes out. We'll all know mm -hmm. each other there's only one month that is not anyone can drop in and that is when we get to i believe it is november when everyone's got a whole novel right and we know each other's novels and we're talking at the very very big yes. scale and you wouldn't want to be a brand new person in the room and read say eight to 12 entire novels before novels the first scratch, session. Right. right, yes. Before the first session so that you can right. be on right. board. That would, that that would, would be not challenging. work very well. That would be challenging. So, yeah. But, but that's that. Yeah, and so the way that you guys are balancing both the ability to have this kind of sustained engagement, you know, sustained and planned development throughout the course mm -hmm. of the year, while mm -hmm. also keeping it flexible enough for people to be able to come and go and again not feel like if they have to take a month off they've missed the boat um that's that's really um i i, I think that that's that's a really fun element to this we are we are very excited because we can be so agile we can respond to what people need and folks will come in and we're gonna meet some new friends and we're gonna read some new stories and if you can't tell, I'm very excited. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, so how people can sign up for this is going to start in January, right? Which yes, feels like a long time ago now. It's September when we're doing this. But of course, uh, things in space come around fairly quickly because we we uh, we, we, we plan in advance for these things. So uh, describe to people how they can um, how they can they can sign up and and make sure to stay informed about this. Will you put the uh, BlackBerry link somewhere useful? Okay. Yes. So if you go to BlackBerry on the left-hand menu, scroll down to the space options, and one of your choices is to look at the module list as a table, and you will see portal tags. Search on the word novel, and you will find the tag novel in a year. Click that, get all of them lined up in front of you and read through. And in, let me think. Right now, we're voting about November, mm -hmm. which means that in November, we will be voting about January. 
Right. And people could probably put them on their wish list, right? Yes. If you find those novel in a year tagged classes and put them on your wish list, then the amazing Jenny Gosselin will send you a reminder. She's she's, she's out of this world. We'll send you a reminder when you can vote for the first of the novel in a year modules. Um, and that should be early November. Yeah. So the people can first begin one is to... called, yes, it's called plot and structure. And the, the first three mod, the first four modules are plot and structure, character and voice, setting and world building, and then workshop. So that's a nice hmm. zero draft yep. chunk done. And that's the first four months of novel in a year. Fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. So uh, if you're not signed up for BlackBerry, sign up at BlackBerry. Um, Go into in the space section, find those modules in the module directory um, under novel in a year and you can add them to your wish list. Uh, And then again, when it when they are when it's time to uh, to vote for them and to 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 put yourself in to sign up, um, you will you will get a reminder. Well, and if anyone would like to write to me directly, it's sparrow.alden at signumu.org. And Corey or Druid's Fire, would you please put that somewhere sure. accessible as well, please? Sure. We should be able to do that. Very good. All right. I'm working with wonderful people to do some collaborative teaching so that we could do a lot of a lot of great stories in a manner that that makes your story and you as a writer thrive. And we're very excited. So thank you. You have things to do tonight. Have a wonderful time with this wonderful story. We will. We will. Thank, thank, thank you, you very Sparrow much for party. joining us. Good night. Bye now. Okay. Oh, hang on a second. <laughs> Switching back and forth between Zoom and not Zoom. This is complicated. Okay, there we are. Um, excellent. Um, okay, so there's uh, and it's lots of really fun uh, programs being developed in space right now. Um, really excited. I've also heard rumors uh, that uh, the wonderful Amy Sturgis is going to be teaching some space modules uh, soon. Um, so there's going to be some lots of really exciting things going on in. Uh, uh, in space here, as there have been for the last two years, and uh, uh, and much more coming up. All right, let us jump into till we have faces here again. So we got through chapter one last time, which was which was excellent work, um, and uh, you'll remember that we ended with the death of the queen, um, and uh, the death of the second queen of the of the, uh, the the king's second wife uh and the um who died in childbed um uh, no wait we didn't get to the death of the queen we just got to the marriage of the queen that's what we did yes we got to the marriage of the queen and the putting her into the marriage bed so it's a, we've got several beds we've got the marriage bed the child bed and then we've got the death bed um all of which i think are actually the same bed uh, now i've spoiled it have i larry oh well yeah the queen's not Queen's not going to live long. Of course, that happens very early in chapter two, so not too not too much of a spoiler. All right, so let us let us uh, let us jump back in here. Okay. Um. So, at 
the when the queen dies, um, the king is very angry, right? Um, and he's much more angry at the fact that um, the queen bore a daughter than he is at the fact that the queen died, right? Um, he feels that the whole thing, he feels cheated, right? He's very angry at Ungit um, for not honoring his sacrifices. You know, he gave all these sacrifices. He did all these things to try to guarantee a male heir offspring. And he, um, uh, and he, and it doesn't happen, right? He's, he's, he's been instead visited with a plague of girls, as he says. Um, and after he then vents his anger first on the slave boy whom he stabs to death, um, and then on Orwal, whom he throws about the room, uh, whom he beats and throws about the, the room, and then he, um, and then on the fox, whom he threatens to send to the mines to be worked to death. And after that, after the fox and Orwal leave the room, Orwal knows the fox is going to die. The fox is the person that she loves most in the world um, and is trying to save his life, right? Um, he asks for her help. You will recall to go get him some particular herbs um, to, which are poisonous, which she knows are poisonous, um, as he's going to co commit suicide uh, like a philosopher instead of going to the mines. So this is Orwal's response to that. They say that those who go that way lie wallowing in filth down there in the land of the dead. Hush, hush. Are you, are you also still a barbarian? At death we are resolved into our elements. Shall I accept birth and cavil at? Oh, I know, I know. But, grandfather, do you really in your heart believe nothing of what is said about the gods and those below? But you do, you do. You are trembling. That's my disgrace. The body is shaking. I needn't let it shake the god within me. Have I not already carried this body too long if it makes such a fool of me at the end? But we are wasting time. Okay, so as the fox is confronting death, he is attempting to face death bravely, right? This is the fox doing as he so often does, um, the fox trying to put his philosophy into action, right? Um, and Orwal is very often quick to notice the the tension, right, between the fox's own impulses and the fox's philosophy. We saw this first with his poetry, right, his love for poetry, how he says that the poets lie and, you know, the, the lies of the poets, the stories of the gods, um, you know, there are scandal and they're all lies. Um, but And uh, that's not really the poetry that you should value. The poetry that you should value is where, you know, where, where, where philosophy and wisdom has been rendered uh, uh, poetically. But, of course, you'll remember Orwal saying things like, I was never deceived by that, right? And, and she can see how much he loves, um, how much he loves this poetry, how much he loves these things, um, even though he, well, doesn't exactly pretend not to, but he, uh, you know, he, he knows what he should like best and what he tries to tell Orwal. She, you know, the, the, it's the difference, as she says, between the poetry that he praises most and the poetry that he clearly actually loved most. Um, here again, we can see um, Orwal drawing strong attention to his face, not just in her narrator's voice, right? Not just in her commentary on the thing, but to him, to his face. Um, 
emphasizing the difference between the philosophy in which he believes and the uh, the sort of reality behind that, right, or kind of around that. Um, his philosophy is that at death we are resolved into our elements. You know, shall I accept birth and cavalat? Right, he's not even allowed to finish the statement, right? But, uh, you know, we have no control over our birth. We have no control over our death. We should accept both of them equally, right? Um, that's his philosophy, right? Um, he, she points out he is not acting consistently with that philosophy. He is, he is trembling, right? Um, she pushes him, do you really in your heart believe nothing? of what is said about the gods and those below. Um, and she claims to have proven, essentially, that he does, in his heart, believe um, that he does fear the gods and he does fear death. And she points out his, his trembling, right? Um, That's my disgrace, he says. He admits the tension. The body is shaking. I needn't let it shake the God within me. In fact, this division is part of his philosophy, right? That his flesh is weak, right? That, uh, that, that the material things are, are weakness and a source of weakness, right? But the God within him, the spirit, the spiritual matter, right? His soul um, is what need not be shaken, even if this body that is hanging about him. And of course, you'll remember, remember Orwell herself in, in the very first paragraph of the book referring to her the carrion, right, that was her body? You can see the influence of the fox's philosophy on her, right, uh, in her attitude towards the flesh, I think. Um, but, um, uh, but anyway, yes, it, I needn't let, um, I needn't let it shake the God within me. Notice um, again, this is a very sort of platonic idea, right? Where you have the, the, the flesh and the spirit. And the flesh needn't disturb the spirit if the spirit remains master of it, right? If the, if the spirit remains in control and appropriately, the spirit is meant to dominate the body. Um, problems come when the flesh rises up and uh, influences or corrupts or misleads or dominates even the spirit. When that happens, then you have let the flesh shake the God within you, right? Um, in the, using the fox's terms here. Um, have I not already carried this body too long if it makes such a fool of me at the end? Um, you know, the, the knowledge of the uh, the ways in which his flesh is leading him uh, to uh, to tremble at the idea of death. It is making a fool of him. It just proves that he's carried this body too long. This, of course, is again, it's one a, 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 you know a tenet of Platonic philosophy that death is a good thing, right? To be rid of the flesh, um, to be rid of the flesh which is weighing you down, which is corrupting you in this way. Um, this is why. Suicide was not a horrible thing, um, again, according to this philosophy, um, because in the end, you're just uh, uh, you're just ridding yourself of this fleshly burden, right, that has been weighing down your spirit. Um, 
but notice Orwell's perspective here. It's not just about... So the one thing I wanted to emphasize here is that is the Fox's philosophy and the challenge of applying the Fox's philosophy. Again, his philosophy embraces the tension itself, right? It's not like uh, his philosophy does not believe it even exists. Um, but, uh, but this is one challenge. The tension between, on the one hand, this philosophy which sounds great, right? These ideas which seem wise, um, uh, which seem wise to, um, to the fox, to Orwell, right? Um, but Orwell, although she respects the fox, although she loves the fox, um, she doesn't buy into his philosophy, right? She, from the start and continuously all the way through, feels that his philosophy is, at the end of the day, not confronting certain elements of reality. Um, Notice again, the, I, 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 we're looking at the progression of his comments. Look at the progression of hers. She starts off with his emotional appeal, right? They say that those who go that way lie wallowing in filth down there in the land of the dead. And when he says, hush, are you also still a barbarian, right? You can see why he says that, right? She, she is here just vocalizing um, vague traditions of her people, right? Um what he dismisses as superstitious belief, right? Um, why would you think you are wallowing in filth down there in the land of the dead? Who told you that, right? Who showed you that? This is, this is, are you still a barbarian? Have you learned nothing, right? Have you gained no philosophy and wisdom um, to just believe these, uh, these barbaric, um, you know, sort of cultural taboos and whatnot, right? Um, and she's, oh, I know, I know, she says, right? Yeah, I, I've learned your philosophy. You've taught me these things. I understand that. However, do you really in your heart believe nothing about what is said about the gods and those below? As we talked about before, Orwell is angry with the gods. Orwell hates the gods. But she does not disbelieve in them. Her hatred is based on her conviction that they are real. The question, are the gods real? Do you believe in the gods? Does not ever at any point seem to be an active, um, an active question for her. Even after she has been taught the fox's philosophy, which she understands and respects, and as we, I think we can see, as I was suggesting, ways in which it has influenced her entire worldview, and yet it doesn't change the fact that she knows that the gods are real. Um... He can dismiss the tradition, their local traditions about what happens to suicides in the land of the, how suicides are punished in the land of the dead. That's what she's referring to in that first line, right? Um, he can be dismissive of that, but she doesn't dismiss it. Um, do you believe nothing of what is said about the gods and those below? Um, I talked about the, the sort of the gap, right, in his philosophy, or the gap between what he believes and what he feels, which, which Orwell often emphasizes in her description of the fox. Orwell's mind, though, is much more deeply divided. 
um, where on the one hand she sort of accepts the foxes. She accepts that he is wise. She accepts his love and his wisdom. But she doesn't really believe these things. She knows that the things about, that what is said about the gods and those below is true. And when it really comes down to it, when it comes down to facing the actual question of action, are you going to commit suicide or not? She's not willing to throw her lot in with the philosophy the way that the fox is. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. So, Dolores Stroke, um, yeah, it's true that barbarians are basically people who don't speak Greek. Um, yes, the Greeks believe in the gods, but it's different. It, we, certainly it is with the fox, right? Um, the fox's species of Greekness, right, um, is uh, one very much... It's a, he, is a, he is a philosophical Greek. Um, and so does he believe in the gods? No, not really. Not intellectually. Um, he believes that the stories about the gods... He talks about Aphrodite, right? But he believes in the divine nature, right? He believes in the divine in all things. He, he, he believes that the divine nature is unified. He's a monotheist. He's like a platonic monotheist, right? Um, uh, he doesn't, what he doesn't believe is the literal truth of the stories about the gods. They're lies of poets, Thanaro. That's exactly right. Lies of poets. Um, and again, that's a, that's, a, it's not that all Greeks agreed with that, right? Um, that that was how every Greek believed. Um, but that is, um, that is very much the, um, the kind of the part of the dichotomy that, that the fox and by extension, Greek wisdom, right, represents in the story. Um, he is the spokesperson for this more sophisticated, more intellectual, in this sense, more advanced, like more intellectually advanced um, worldview, right? And he considers the people of Gloam to be barbarians, not just in the technical sense that they speak a language that is not Greek, um, but in all, with all of the connotations of that, right? Uh, you know, unwashed, uncivilized, ignorant, superstitious, all of those things he believes of the people of Glom. And that's what he means when he says to Orwell, are you also still a barbarian? Right? On the one hand, well, yeah, of course she is. Right? Um, but on the other hand, he's raised her better than that now. Right? He has, he has lifted her up from being merely a barbarian. Not only by teaching her Greek, but also by, um, uh, by teaching her philosophy. Uh, by showing her the truth of these things. Right? Um, but she, although she accepts that, although she respects that, she never ceases to be a barbarian. This tension, um, so I, I wanted to begin with this because this is setting up a, this is going to be a major thread, especially through the middle of the story. Um, Orwell will find herself um, caught between these two very different ways of looking at the world. The way of looking at the world through um, the, the fox's fundamentally skeptical uh, philosophy. Skeptical in the sense of denying the reality, um, denying that 
gods take on forms and come down and interact with humans. You know, that like all of those, the, the reality, denying any reality uh, to what would be called mythological stories, right? Um, he doesn't believe any of those things. So she will have that coming at her from on one side from the fox, and then there is the traditional beliefs of Gloom. Um, and she'll have that coming at her from another side. So th th this is going to be a really, really important um, kind of paradigm, this, this sort of division. So um, we'll keep that in mind as we go through. That will come up again. Well, if we get to chapter five, it'll come up. Let's see how we do. But of course, our one of our central characters is born in chapter two, or rather born. Uh, no, he is born in chapter two. Begotten, presumably, at the end of chapter one. Um, and that is Istra, Psyche, who is uh, the baby um, delivered by the queen, the new queen, um, when she when she dies in, um, uh, in, in childbed. Nevertheless, because I had a little loved the queen, I went to see Psyche that very evening, as soon as the fox had set my mind at rest. And so, in one hour, I passed out of the worst anguish I had yet suffered into the beginning of all my joys. The worst anguish I had yet suffered is, of course, when she thought the fox was going to be killed, like that horrible, horrible night. Um when the queen dies and she's beaten and she believes the fox is going to be killed um, uh, in, you know, sent to the mines to die. Um, and so she emerges straight out of that horrible situation into the beginning of all my joys. You'll remember that the, the daughter is named Istra, um, I-S-T-R-A, and, but the Greek for that, that, that translates to psyche in Greek. So she is called Psyche most of the time. Orwell calls her Psyche most of the time. The fact that the Greek translation of her name is the one that Orwell primarily adopts for her, what she calls her, is itself, by the way, a really interesting um, little window into her own point of view, right? Um, she doesn't think of, she doesn't think of her, her half-sister as Istra. She thinks of her half-sister as Psyche. Um, she is influenced from the start by that Greek frame of mind through the fox. Uh, and of course, um, what does, what does psyche mean in Greek? Right. So I'll do just like the fox did for the, you know, the fox quizzes her and says, um, you know enough Greek by now to know what Istra would be in Greek. Right. And she answers correctly that it's psyche. Um, so I will ask, do you know, know enough Greek to know what psyche would be in English? Um, this is a, uh, this is an important and common word. Soul, exactly. Soul or spirit. The, it's a complicated word, um, um, especially as used in the New Testament. FYI, <laughs> like as a side note. But anyway, psyche. Yes, it means soul. It means the human soul. Um, therefore, uh, this should make our allegory alarms start going off, right? Now, of course, this is the myth of Cupid and Psyche, right? He's it's, it's a myth retold. The myth in question is the myth of Cupid and Psyche. Um, so the allegory is, in this sense, not Lewis's allegory, or at least it doesn't originate with Lewis. Um, the myth of Cupid and Psyche, because of the name of Psyche's character, is 
has allegorical alerts all the way through. Um, so yes, psyche, psyche is her name means human soul, and you know, if you uh, read much medieval literature, you will very soon um, develop that little allegory alarm that goes off anytime you meet a character uh, who has that kind of name. You're right. It's not necessarily human specifically. Um, there, I'm taking context here. Um, psyche means soul. But uh, in this, uh, as we've been beginning to look at already, the way in which the human and divine interact with each other is one of the things that this story is very interested in from the very beginning. Um, but uh, but you're right. It's not explicitly human soul here. Um, but, um, okay. So, um, we'll just sort of file that away for now because... Um, the reason I want to, um, the reason I want to file that away, I want to acknowledge it, like that her name means soul, and so therefore, it's. I was going to say tempting. That's not even the right word. It seems like the story is inviting us to think of her as an allegorical character, from the start, and therefore to start trying to kind of piece together an allegory from the beginning. Um, what I would, the advice I would give at this stage in our discussions, again, I want to acknowledge that, but the advice I would give at this stage in our discussion is not to do that yet. Um, for one, we don't know enough, really, yet, to be able to piece out, uh, to, to piece together what the allegory would be like. So if, if, you know, the new girl child here is soul, you know, who is Orwell, who is Red of All, who is the king, who is the fox, right? Can we, can we make allegorical equivalents to that? Is there, is there a larger allegory that we're supposed to be piecing together here um, that her name is kind of the, uh, you know, the key to or the, 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 the you know, the sort of the hint um, for, you know, like those, um, those logic questions that, like, tell you all about the relationship of things and then one point will, will tell you the answer to one and then by applying that one you can figure and all the other connections you can figure out the you know everything else you know those kind of the logic problems they used to put on the GREs and that kind of thing anyway um so i don't think we should do that i'm not saying that there is not allegory involved because cs lewis is one of the last people who is going to be deaf to the suggestion of an allegorical name like that not because he wrote allegory, because he, though he did, um, though this is where I say, footnote, the Chronicles of Narnia are not an allegory, um, but that's a different story. We can talk about the Chronicles of Narnia on a different day. Um, they are symbolic and significant, but not allegorical. Um, in any case, the... Um, but C.S. Lewis was a great reader of medieval literature and loved allegory. Um, wrote an entire book on allegory in the Middle Ages, The Allegory of Love. Um, so I guess why I say C.S. Lewis will be the last to miss the suggestiveness of an allegorical name like this. And is he 
thinking in allegorical terms? Is there, does this story kind of work on an allegorical level? Yeah, it does. Um, but we won't really be able to see it for a long time. And he's, he's not running with it from the start. I do not believe that this story presents us, even though we get this one little clue, right? I don't think it presents us with enough information because we don't even know the context, right? Um, okay, so she's soul. In what, in, what, in what context? In the Middle Ages, this was easy because all the allegories were about the same thing, right? You know, when in the Middle Ages, um, if you had a character, and I think um, I was saying, um, I was saying human soul specifically, before, because that's what it would be in a, in a medieval allegory, right? Um, no question, it would be it would be human soul, and then because you know you've got the like the everyman figure who represents the human soul, and then you would have either like temptations happening to the soul, or maybe it would be a fall and uh, and and repentance and resurrection kind of thing. Um, but anyway, like you you would have the whole um, you know Christian theological and scriptural framework to work with, right? As a kind of a given that that's sort of where the allegory is going probably most of the time, except when it's erotic, but that's different. Anyway, um, we don't, I don't think we've been given that context clearly enough to start doing allegorical con conclusions. So acknowledging, but let's leave it aside for now. We'll come back to it probably in a while. Um, I think that the allegory and the allegory that is suggested by Psyche's name is best viewed from like the vantage point of the end of the book, basically. I don't think it's going to be until then that Lewis is really going to invite us to think of Psyche in allegorical terms, really. Um, and we really don't want to lose the significance of Psyche as a person. Um, this is another problem. If you start doing allegorical readings, you stop paying attention to the characters as people. This is, I think, what Tolkien hated about the idea of the Lord of the Rings being read allegorically. Um, um, he didn't want people to start, to, you know, start uh, thinking about Hitler so much when they were hearing about Sauron that they didn't actually pay attention to Sauron. So, um, okay, okay. So, enough said about that. Let's keep reading about Psyche. The child was very big. Not a warish little thing, as you might have expected from her mother's stature, and very fair of skin. You would have thought she made bright all the corner of the room in which she lay. She slept. Tiny was the sound of her breathing. But there was never a child but there never was a child like Psyche for quietness in her cradle days. As I gazed at her, the fox came in on tiptoes and looked over my shoulder. Now by all the gods, he whispered. Old fool that I am, I could almost believe that there really is divine blood in your family. Helen herself, new hatched, must have looked so. Referring, of course, to the myth in which Helen was hatched from an egg, um, that is, Helen, future of Troy, um, was hatched from an egg because she was the result of Zeus having sex with Leda in the form of a swan. Um, well, he was in the form of a swan, not her. Um, so, uh, uh, anyway... By the way, notice this is that tension that I was talking about and which Orwell was drawing attention to in the last slide about the fox and his philosophy. His language is throughout, right? He speaks about the gods and the myths all the time, right? It's, that's, it's his vocabulary. Um, 
whether it's in his exclamation by all the gods or whether it's in, you know, immediately Helen herself knew Hatched must have looked so. Um, the casual way in which he not only connects what he's seeing um, to, uh, uh, to one of these stories, which he dismisses as lies of poets, um, but, um, but the casual way in which he expects Orwell to know the story, recall the story, and apply it appropriately, right, to follow what he means when he says Helen herself knew Hatched, must have looked so. Um, uh, okay, so um, look at the the first thing, this, this paragraph is the first description that we're given of Psyche. Um, it starts with a physical description. She was big, much bigger than you'd expect because remember her mom was tiny, um, and very fair of skin. She is, this seems unusual. Um, we're not told, but, but it seems that the, um, uh, the people of Gloam are somewhat darker skinned, certainly. That, remember, she was a foreigner, the queen who came in. Um, and uh, Orwell describes her not only as beautiful and unexpectedly big, which is good for a baby, um, uh, health, you know, means health and vigor, right? But the effect that she immediately describes her having on other things. Um, you would have thought she made bright all the corner of the room in which she lay. Right, the first impression that she has of Psyche is that Psyche is not only herself beautiful, but she confers beauty upon other things. More on this later. Um, we get the abnormality, right? Um, the sound of her breathing is tiny. There never was a child like Psyche for quietness in her cradle days. She has this contentment, right? This peacefulness about her that is unlike any child um, uh, you ever met, right? There's She describes Psyche as being just special. Just special from the very beginning. And the fox's version of this, how his kind of encapsulation, which is, I guess, an ironic word to use in the context, his encapsulation, his encapsulation of this is that Helen herself knew Hatched must have looked so. This is like a divine baby. Like Helen, who was so beautiful because she was half God, half human. I could almost believe there really is divine blood in your family. So this question of um, this question of is she is she entirely human? She's is she in part divine is sort of a question that lurks around Psyche from her cradle, right? Um, in the eyes of both um, in the eyes of both Orwell and the fox, though expressed in their different ways. Um, here's the some of the more, more on Psyche. Of Psyche's beauty, at every age the beauty proper to that age, there is only this to be said. 
that there were no two opinions about it, from man or woman, once she had been seen. It was beauty that did not astonish you till afterwards, when you had gone out of sight of her and reflected on it. While she was with you, you were not astonished. It seemed the most natural thing in the world. As the fox delighted to say, she was according to nature. What every woman, or even every thing, ought to have been and meant to be, but had missed by some trip of chance. Indeed, when you looked at her, you believed for a moment that she had not missed it. She made beauty all around her. When she trod on mud, the mud was beautiful. When she ran in the rain, the rain was silver. When she picked up a toad, she had the strangest and I thought unchanciest love for all manner of brutes. The toad became beautiful. Um, okay. So what are the things, just kind of working through the things we're being asked to process, things we're asked, being asked and invited to associate with psyche here, right? Um, there are no two opinions about her beauty, right? Everyone agrees. This is not just a biased opinion, right? Um, but it's not just that she's very beautiful. It is the lack of astonishment when you see her. So notice how what Orwald does in her description here is not lean into that first impression, the fox's first impression, right? Almost I could believe there is divine blood in your family, right? Is this, is this a human baby? Is this a holy human baby? Or is this a partly divine baby that I'm seeing, right? His astonishment um, at the beauty of the child, at the peacefulness of the child. Um, but instead of leaning into that, instead of characterizing her beauty as a beauty which transcended normal mortal beauty, right? No one could look at her and not be amazed. People would cover their faces when they saw her. That's not how, he, how she describes it. Instead, what Orwell insists on is the nature, uh, the naturalness of her beauty, right? Um, her beauty is the beauty of the created world itself. It is not transcendent beauty. It is in her can be seen the most perfect essence of all created things. We can see this. It's, this is why she brings out the beauty in everything around her. She makes mud and rain and toads beautiful when she is near them, right? Because there is something in her, in her beauty, that draws out, draws attention to that which is beautiful. Presumably, there is already something beautiful in mud. There is something already beautiful in raindrops. There is something already beautiful even in toads. We just don't normally see it, right? We don't normally see it, and maybe that's our fault. And Psyche is working on us when we look at her, right, as Orwell is describing. Or maybe it's something about the things itself. Remember, that's what she describes, um, what every woman or even everything ought to have been and meant to be, but had missed by some trip of chance. Nothing in nature is perfect, right? This is part of... Uh, part of the fox's philosophy, right? Nothing in nature is perfect. Everything has fallen short of the ideal, the sort of spiritual ideal, the platonic ideal. Um, but everything in the flesh, everything in this fleshly world around us 
has somehow fallen short of that perfection, has fallen short of that of that ultimate beauty that it could have. Not only has she not done so, not fallen short herself, but, you know, when you looked at her, you believed for a moment that they had not missed it. She helps you to see mud as it might have been, toads as they might have been, right? Um, she is like the spiritual essence of things, untrammeled by the flesh, uncorrupted by the flesh, uncompromised, right, by the limitations of the flesh. Um, so I think in one sense we can begin to see a little bit better in what sense she is psyche, right? Um, uh, in what sense she is a soul. Um, and exactly as um, uh, exactly as you were suggesting, who was it who was suggesting this earlier on? I'm forgetting now. Who was correcting me about human soul? One of you. Anyway, you're quite right. Right? It's not just human souls. It's like the essence of everything. Um, Sphinx, it was you. There you go. Thanks. Um, yes, yes. Um, yeah, Jocelyn is wondering about that phrase, the unchanciest love. Um, uh, yes. Um, hang on a second. Leaf of Starlight, let me, let me address that first. Uh, is it uncompromised by the flesh, detached from the flesh, or is it about union and beauty of the flesh, even though seemingly ugly, such as mud, toad, and such things later on? Um, it's She's not unfleshly, right? Um, she's an incarnate being. It's more like she is, she is associated with that ideal principle, that beautiful ideal principle that lies behind all things, which normally are ugly, Right in their normal fleshly manifestation, um, uh, you know, physical manifestation. Um, but you can you get a glimpse, right? Again, uh, when you looked at her, you believed for a moment that they had not missed it, right? You, you you get the impression of what that perfection would be, what mud would look like if if it were perfect, right? What toads would look like if they were perfect. Um, yeah, anyway, so back to um, uh, unchanciest love of things. Uh, um, yeah, it's, it's a strange word, unchanciest. Um, she clearly is talking about love. Um, uh, let's see. Alyssa says, unlikely, as in love for awkward or ugly things. I agree. Carrie says perhaps even more uh, unlucky and dangerous. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think the word, the use of the word chance in the middle of that word um, seems to me to suggest I hear in that word just a faint echo of resistance from Orwell that she considers it almost unlucky um, like it's a, a slight misfortune that um, that psyche happens to have this kind of love for all manner of brutes. She goes out of her way to find ugly things 
and do things like picking up toads, right? Um, Orwell considers that un unchancy, right? Um, it's a little unfortunate that she uh, uh, seems so attached to ugly things. Um, but you hear the irony there? There's a really painful irony that underlies this, of which I suspect Orwell of being perfectly unaware. Right? For there is one very ugly thing that there's another very ugly thing that Psyche loves. Um, and that's Orwell herself. Um, and in the midst of all of this paragraph of how Psyche and her beauty renders even the ugliest things beautiful, the, I think, almost um, totally unconscious, unselfconscious way in which Orwell describes this, having already prompted us to understand that she herself is the ugliest. She is um, the ugliest of people, physically ugliest of people. Um, and Psyche loves her, and that she herself is being made beautiful. By implication, she herself is being made beautiful by Psyche, when Psyche is near her. Um, but she doesn't talk about that. And again, I don't even get the impression from these descriptions that she's even thinking of that. I think it's the unchanciest love, right? That's the phrase that, to me, most clearly suggests that she's not aware of it. Um, that she's not realizing that this thing that she calls like, oh, it's really unfortunate that she loved ugly things so much. Um, that's what makes me think she's not aware of the irony. Um, but there is a there is a deep and really moving layer of irony in this whole description. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Yes. Um, her ugliness definitely does affect her. We'll come to that. This, this, will, this will feature more later on. Um, we will join Orwell in primarily looking at Psyche uh, and thinking about Psyche in these passages. But I couldn't help but just nod at that fact here. Um, uh, yeah. No, Fanaro, that's exactly the thing. I think that's exactly the thing that she points out. Um, ugly things are not made more ugly in, con in contrast with Psyche. That's what you might expect, right? And that it's exactly the, the fact that her, her presence, her beauty, is the reverse of that. It could be. Again, if they had leaned into the whole, she is like a goddess, right, from the very beginning, that it could have gone in that direction, Right? she could be saying, like, yes, next to Psyche, even the most beautiful of things was horrible, right? Um, you know, was ugly. But that's not what she emphasizes. Cal Elros, you're right. Um, Redival thinks that way, right? Redival is very aware of the fact she, Redival is beautiful and considered attractive. Um, but she's very aware of the fact that uh, Istra 
her half-sister is far more beautiful than she, and that nobody's going to look at her twice um, when her half-sister is nearby. Um, so Redival is sensitive to that, but that is not at all the way that Orowal sees Psyche, nor is it the effect that she believes. Um, the This idea of competition with Psyche that Redival has um, is, uh, you know, absurd to uh, to Orwell. Um That last thing I want to touch on here, we have to remember, it is crucially important to remember at all times while reading this book that nothing we're being told is objective. Nothing we're being told is objective. Every element, every description, every characterization in this story is being filtered through Orwell's very strong voice and perspective. Um, this description does not tell us so much about what Psyche was as it tells us about what Orwell thought of her. That's not to say that I'm saying that Orwell is wrong about Psyche, and Psyche's actually nothing like this. Um, I, that is not an excuse for dismissing these things, but we have to always maintain that perspective. What we're learning here is not just what was Psyche like. What we're learning here is what did Orwell think Psyche was like? What effect did Psyche have on Orwell and Orwell's perspective? Um, so yeah, again, not, not, not in any way suggesting we ignore it or throw it out. But it is crucially important for us to remember that we're getting that. That, that, that we're hearing things in Orwell's voice, too. Um, all right. We were often out all day. That is the fox and Orwell and uh, Psyche. We were often out all day in summer on the hilltop to the southwest, looking down on all gloam and across, the, across to the Grey Mountain. So... Gloam is in the valley down beneath them. They're up on a hill, and the Grey Mountain, which is right next to Gloam, is on the far side. So Gloam is in between them. They're on the sort of the opposite side of Gloam from the Grey Mountain. We stared our eyes out on that jagged ridge till we knew every tooth and notch of it, for none of us had ever gone there or seen what was on the other side. This is the Grey Mountain we're talking about, right? None of us, none of them had ever been to the Grey Mountain, and none of them had ever been to the other side. Psyche, almost from the beginning, for she was a very quick-thinking child, was half in love with the mountain. She made herself stories about it. When I'm big, she said, I will be a great, great queen, married to the greatest king of all, and he will build me a castle of golden ember up there on the very top. The fox clapped his hands and sang, prettier than Andromeda, prettier than Helen, prettier than Aphrodite herself. The fox is delighted at the fantasies of Psyche. When she sees the mountain, the gray mountain, that none of them had ever gone to, she imagines she's making up stories for herself, that she will be a great, great queen one day, married to the greatest king of all, and he will build me a castle of gold and amber up there on the very top. This delights the fox. It has a different effect on Orwell. Speak words of better omen, grandfather, I said, though I knew he would scold and mock me for saying it. For at his words, though on that summer day the rocks were too hot to touch, 
It was as if a soft, cold hand had been laid on my left side, and I shivered. Bye, said the fox. It is your words that are ill-omened. The divine nature is not like that. It has no envy. But whatever he said, I knew it is not good to talk that way about Ungit. The fox... The fox does not believe, of course, that Psyche is going to one day live in a golden amber palace on top of the Grey Mountain, married to the greatest king in the world. Um, any more than he believes in Andromeda or Aphrodite or Helen, right? Um, but he loves those kinds of poetic expressions, right? Um, when his response, his reaction to her beauty, to her nature, Andromeda, Helen, Aphrodite herself, um, his association of her with these divine and semi-divine figures from his mythology, um, He's thinking the stories that she is telling are like a, a, a mythology of her own, right? And he finds it fitting. He finds it something like according to nature, right? It is, it is appropriate. It is a story that fits her because of who she is and what she is. Um, yeah. So, um, her reaction, Orowal's reaction, though, is quite different. She hears in his words, words of ill omen. She doesn't respond to Psyche's words. We don't see Orowal's response to Psyche's story about the golden amber palace. But, um, we hear instead her reactions to him uh, and to his words. But I think the frame of mind in which she receives his words are an indicator, I think. She perceives the shadow of envy to come. You can't... It is, an, it is ill-omened to compare her beauty to Aphrodite, whom he has identified with Ungit, right? So if he's comparing her to Aphrodite, he's comparing, he's saying she's prettier than Ungit. And you don't want to go there. All of his myths, how many Greek myths start with a mortal claiming superiority to a god? And how does that normally end? Right? His own stories, which he has told, the fox's own stories, which he has told to Orwell and to Psyche, should teach that you don't... I mean, it's one of the recurring themes of Greek mythology, um, that you don't say these kinds of things about the gods. You don't compare yourself to the gods. You don't certainly claim supremacy over the gods, or else they're likely to come down and challenge you, and you'll end up transformed into something unpleasant. Um, but more than that, right, it's not just the lessons that she's learned from his own mythology, in which he doesn't really believe, um, but from hers as well. Hers is darker. Um, think of that dark black rock 
in the uh, shadowy house of Ungit, um, with all the rancid old smells of holiness around. Um, and Ungit seems even more threatening. Um, and she believes that Ungit is prone to jealousy. Um, so this idea... Of, so Orowal's response to hearing Psyche's words, her story that someday she will be the greatest of queens and that she will live in a golden amber palace on top of the Grey Mountain, um, puts Orowal in a, it raises for Orowal the shadow of envy, and she is terrified that the gods are going to become envious of Psyche. Um, which, of course, she herself fears because she loves Psyche so much. Um, the fox, of course, dismisses this. Um, the divine nature is not like that. It has no envy. The fox believes that the divine nature is, be is benevolent um, and does not act like that. Again, lies of poets. Lies of poets. He dismisses those stories, even the ones that he tells, even the ones that he was just alluding to. Um, uh, and... But, um, so there is this, uh, this concept of, like, love without envy, right? This benevolence without envy. Um, but whatever he said, Orwell knows the truth. Okay. Redifal, at the beginning of chapter three, is caught smooching one of the royal guards, Terran, um, outside Bata's window. Bata, the nursemaid. Um, and they're caught by the king, who immediately has the young man castrated on the spot and then sold as a slave. And then Redival is put into the charge of, um, uh, of Orwal and the fox. They are meant to guard her, with again another uh, horribly biting comment about how in this Orwal can do what she is good for, namely scaring men away with her horribly ugly face, right? Um, since her face is so horrifying to men, um, she should do a good job of guarding her sister because she can repel men. That's what she does. Um, uh, classic, um, classic Orwal's father, the king, uh, sort of sort of comment there. Um, yes, Ambrosius. Very good. Very good. Uh, I'm glad you made that comparison. Thinking about jealousy and envy. Um, Ambrosius says, the king is extremely envious, always wanting what other people have and being dissatisfied with what he has. Yes. And I would add, also very uncertain of his own position. Um, and if you want to make the king angry, um, do something to suggest that you're going to try to take his power from him, right? Or do something to slight his authority or his power. Um, it is his insecurity that leads 
to his anger most of the time, right? When he feels he is not being respected. Um, when he feels he is being challenged. Uh, that is when his anger flares most. Um, and that, I would say, is exactly what um, is exactly what the fox is denying to be true of the divine nature. This is why the divine nature is not jealous, right? Because, um, according to the fox, because that suggests insecurity. And the divine nature is not insecure, right? So um, it's absurd to ascribe that kind of envy, that kind of jealousy to um, the gods, to the divine nature. Um, but yes, the king is an excellent illustration of exactly the kind of envy, the kind of jealousy that um, the gods are being ascribed, uh, that is being ascribed to the gods. Um, yeah. Um, is this what Orwell says is the start of all her troubles or the end of her happy times? Yes. When Redival, the end of her happy times, or when Redival is forced to join them. Yes. Redival was utterly cowed by the king's anger and obeyed him. She was always with us, and that soon cooled any love she had for Psyche or me. She yawned and she quarreled and she mocked. Psyche, who was a child so merry, so truthful, so obedient, that in her, the fox said, virtue herself had put on a human form, could do no right in Redival's eyes. One day Redival hit her. Then I hardly knew myself again till I found that I was astride of Redival, she on the ground with her face a lather of blood and my hands about her throat. It was the fox who pulled me off, and in the end some kind of peace was made between us. Thus all the comfort we three had had was destroyed when Redival joined us. And after that, little by little, one by one, came the first knocks of the hammer that finally destroyed us all. Um, yes, yes. Um, yes, Mary, you are, that's exactly one of the things, uh, Mary was saying, thinking of how this story is from Orwell's point of view, it looks like she puts so much blame on Redival. Yes, and there is every reason to believe that Redival deserves it in many ways. Um, we will see that it will be Redival who will stir up the trouble later on, the great trouble, uh, soon now. Um, this, I believe, is, this is chapter three, so by chapter five we'll see that. Um, but, um, uh, but yes, you are absolutely correct. Um, that, um, uh, that we should remember that this is from Orwell's perspective, right? And even the things, um, the way that Lewis handles this throughout this book is just masterful. Orwell is not an unreliable narrator in the sense of telling us things that don't happen. Um, I don't believe we're ever led to doubt the, the events, the facts that she describes. Um, nor does, so Orwell does not, we are not in Orwell being given a narrator with a, um, like a warped perspective, right? where, like, her version of reality is just different from other people's version of reality, right? She's not that kind of an unreliable... She's not an unreliable narrator in that sense. And yet, she has very particular perspectives and very strong views. 
and you can see, and this is one of those things that I was talking about last time, that you can see much more clearly in retrospect when you read this book a second and third time. Um, and it's one of the reasons I'm drawing, this passage is one of those that I wanted to make sure to emphasize it didn't strike me at all the first time I read this book. It wasn't until the second and third time that I read the book that this passage really jumps out at me much more. So I'm isolating it so that we can come back to it and notice it more later on. But um, but yes, um, again, she's not unreliable as a narrator. Um, but we do need to remember that um, we are being told uh, she does see things from a certain point of view. Um, and we need to remember that all the perceptions we're getting and all the commentary, right, is from Orwell's perspective. Um, yes, I think I agree with that, Fanaro, that she's not untruthful, but she can be unaware. Remember also, uh, remember what she's writing. What she's writing is an affidavit, right? She is putting her case as if in a court, her case against the gods. And she is asking some wise Greek sometime, if ever they come to read it, to judge her case. And there will be times when she will explicitly draw attention to this, when she will say that she's going out of her way to be as honest and uh, to not alter things, even in her own favor, um, even leaving in parts that are where she has said and done unattractive things. Um, because she is trying, she claims that she is trying to be as objective as she possibly can in presenting her case against the gods, so as to put herself in the best opportunity to get a favorable judgment um, against the gods. Um, so she is being meticulous in trying to be as clear and objective as possible. But of course, she will fail <laughs> at total objectivity, and we have to remember that. Um, uh, yeah, anyway. Um, this is one of the first times that we see we see Psyche threatened. Well, not threatened, but Redival hits her. Redival hits Psyche. And what happens when Redival hits Psyche? When Redival hits Psyche, Orwell goes bonkers, right? Pounces on Redival and beats her sister senseless, right? And is in the midst of choking her out when, uh, uh, when the fox pulls her off. Um, the anger and rage and even violence which any threat to Psyche brings out in Orwell is important. This is an expression of her love for Psyche, clearly. Um, but, um, but it's important. It's important to note this. Um, Yeah. Um, right. Alyssa, I agree. Her language is suggestive. I hardly knew myself again is the phrase that Alyssa is drawing attention to. I hardly knew myself again till I found that I was astride of Redival. She describes this as being wholly, not only outside of her control, but even outside of her knowledge, right? Um, she does describe that as in that phrase that you um, so aptly emphasize, Alyssa, that of knowing herself. I hardly knew myself. Right. She when she is when she goes berserk, right, when she um, uh, is just blindly attacking her sister, um, she is when she doesn't know herself. Right. Um, 
that I agree. I agree. That seems important. That seems important. Um, the plague comes. The fox gets sick, one of the first to get sick. And um, Orowal's not able to be with him and to tend him in his sickness because she has grown and learned enough now that she takes his place, right? The king brings her into the pillar room to advise him and assist him in writing letters and in chattering Greek. Um, so she takes the fox, the fox's place as the king's advisor um, and therefore is not allowed to tend the fox. Um, but Istra does so, right? Psyche goes and she tends the fox and then he gets better. And this, of course, leads to the rumors that her hands can heal the plague. Leading then, of course, to the uh, the you know the people of Glome pounding on the gates of the um, of the palace and demanding that uh, Istra come out among them uh, with her healing hands uh, to heal them of their sickness. They put a queen's dress on her and a chaplet on her head and opened the door. You know how it is when you shed few tears or none, but there is a weight and pressure of weeping through your whole head. It is like that with me even now, when I remember her going out, slim and straight as a scepter, out of the darkness and cool of the hall into the hot, pestilential glare of that day. The people drew back, thrusting one another, the moment the doors opened. I think they expected a rush of spearmen, but a minute later the wailing and shouting died utterly away. Every man, and many a woman too, in that crowd was kneeling. Her beauty, which most of them had never seen, worked on them as a terror might work. Then a low murmur, almost a sob, began, swelled, broke into the gasping cry, A goddess! A goddess! One woman's voice rang out clear, It is Ungat herself in mortal shape! Um, oh, meow, I agree. Pestilential is such a delicious word. Yes. Um, that sentence, oh man. Um... It is like that with me even now when I remember her going out, slim and straight as a scepter, out of the darkness and cool of the hall into the hot, pestilential glare of that day. Oh, man, what an amazing sentence that is. Gives me the chills. Um, out of the darkness and cool of the hall into the hot, pestilential glare of that day. She's coming from the darkness out into the light, right? From concealment into exposure, right? From safety into danger. Uh, f in this climate, cool is good, hot is bad, right? Um, the glare of the day is not only hot and oppressive, it is pestilential, because, of course, the air is a miasma of pestilence, in fact. The people who are uh, clamoring to the door are people who are themselves ill, um, uh, have the pestilence, or are bringing those who do. Um, she is slim and straight as a scepter, that simile, right? She is like herself. This She is herself like the symbol of royal authority. Um... She's not just like royalty. She is like the symbol that confers royalty upon a mere mortal. Remember making ugly things beautiful, right? Um, she is also like the thing that makes royalty royal as well, that confers royalty upon a mere mortal. 
Um, not that the King of Gloam would consider himself a mere mortal. He is of divine blood, after all. Um, but you see what I mean. Um, yes, first fish, very good. Uh, Carrie, I agree. The, um, she's remembering uh, the fox's song about uh, Aphrodite and Anchises, right? Um, and when Aphrodite is revealed with the glory upon her, and the reaction of Anchises covering his face and um, calling for death, right? Um, yeah, she has, Istra has the glory upon her, or looks like she has the glory upon her. That's their reaction. Um, the way in which their fear of mortal danger, they're afraid of a rush of spearmen coming out the door, that the king is going to send soldiers out to kill them all, which is, of course, quite a plausible fear on their part, right? Um, uh, they fear mortal danger, and yet what they actually get is a quite different kind of fear, right? The fear of the numinous, the fear of the divine, like Anchises' fear when he realizes that he has lain with a goddess. Um they all kneel before her. They are, her beauty works on them as a terror might work. Um, their gasping cry, which is almost like a sob, is a goddess, a goddess. Um, and a woman in the crowd identifies her as Ungut herself in mortal shape. Um, if the fox's words on the hilltop were words of ill omen, according to Orwal, this is the worst, right? This is horrible. For the for her to for Istra to appear before all the people and to be acclaimed as a goddess and identified with Ungit herself. It is Ungut herself in mortal shape. Ooh, that's dangerous, right? If anything is going to rouse the envy of the goddess, it would be that, surely, right? Um, and of course, we have to remember what is happening here. She is having mercy on the people. They are calling for her to come and help them, and she does, to her own cost. Not only her exhaustion, she goes about touching and touching and touching, laying her hands on everyone in the crowd. Um, and she takes their diseases upon herself. She herself gets sick as a consequence of this afternoon's work. Um, it doesn't kill her. Um, but she takes their disease. That is a phrase that Lewis uses very conspicuously, uh, that Orwell uses. She takes their filthy diseases upon herself. Um... Uh, yes, the her regalness, her nobility, Ambrosius, are definitely things strongly emphasized here. Um, uh, and now notice, um, notice where it starts. That second sentence. Oh, man. You know how it is when you shed few tears or none? but there is a weight and pressure of weeping through your whole head. It is like that with me even now when I remember her going out. The frame of this entire scene is not primarily, it's not about 
The frame is Orwell's feeling of the weight and pressure of weeping through her whole head. Um, which, by implication, she had at the time um, that she wanted to weep as she watched Istra go out among the people. She is, at that moment, terrified for Istra's safety. Are the people going to swarm her? Um, is she going to survive? Um, is she going to get sick and die? She does get sick, but doesn't die, right? Um, Orwal is afraid for Istra here. We've seen what danger to Istra does to Orwal before, right? But she not only is describing what she was feeling at the time, she's also describing it is like that with me even now. As she recalls the scene, she has that same sense of the weight and pressure of weeping, even when the tears don't actually come. Um, that sense of weeping that does not emerge, of tears which have not yet flowed, that is her sense. This, the, the kind of dread that that description casts over this scene <clears throat> and the sequence to come is marvelous. Just marvelous. Um, man. Uh, and these sentences here, like this is C.S. Lewis at his mature genius as a storyteller. Just incredible. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Her childhood is also sacrificed to perform this act for the people. Yeah, there is an act of sacrifice here. Um, uh, her, her, her childhood dies. Um, I didn't do this passage because I have to skip something or else it will be a very, very long time indeed. Uh, this is not exploring till we have faces, unfortunately. Um, but um, when she recovers from her illness, Orwell does describe her as no longer looking like a child. She's still beautiful. Beautiful, even more beautiful in a different way. Um, but she's not like a child anymore. Um, it is, I agree, Cal Elros, like her child, her childhood, her childishness, right? Her childhood, not in the sense of that period of time in which she was young, but like her, her being a child is sacrificed here. Yes, like she spent it up. Leaf of Starlight, I think that's exactly right. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but it doesn't end with the reverence, right? The tide turns at the beginning of chapter four. Um, you are mad, nurse, said I, talking to Bata. The people were worshipping her not six days ago. I don't know anything about that, said Bata, who knew perfectly well. But she'll get little worship today. I knew what would come of all that touching and blessing. Fine goings-on indeed. The plague's worse than ever it was. There were a hundred died yesterday. The smith's wife's brother-in-law tells me. They say the touchings didn't heal the fever, but gave it. I've spoken to a woman whose old father was touched by the princess, and he was dead before they had carried him home. But he And he wasn't the only one. If anyone had listened to old Bata... But I, at least, listened no more. I love that sentence. Oh, man. But I, at least, listened no more. Um, man, the way that C.S. Lewis manages Orwell's voice as narrator... Again, I, don't, I, I can't think of a first-person narrative that more effectively conveys, while still being a really good narrator voice, um, 
more consistently and effectively conveys the personality of the speaker, of the narrator. It's just one of the best first-person novels I've ever read. Um, just incredible. Um, yeah. Uh, okay, so notice what she's giving us. Again, I don't doubt these facts, right? Um, people believed that she could heal the plague because she tended the fox and he got better. And remember, it's an open question. Does it work? Um, Orwell asks the fox, is it possible? Could she actually heal people by touching them? And the fox says, who knows? It might be according to nature, right, that some could bring healing that way. He, he's, who can tell, right? Um, he's open to the possibility that that could be one of the ways in which nature works mysteriously that they don't understand. Um, Psyche herself thinks that perhaps she could help people by touching them. Um, but what, hap what actually happens, right, is she goes out and she touches all these people. And shockingly, some of them get better and some of them die, right? So there are multiple ways one can look at the situation, right? Um, if you are looking for reasons to believe that Psyche can heal people, you will find evidence for that belief, right? Because some of the people she touched got better. Um, if you believe, as Bata is here suggesting, that um, acting like a goddess and being acclaimed as a goddess is very, very bad luck indeed, right? Um, and might bring about the uh, anger of the gods, and therefore that her touch would therefore bring death rather than healing it. Well, you'll find evidence to support that too, right? Um, and uh, uh, this is one of the things that brings about the turning of the tide, right? Because either either interpretation can easily be supported. Um, but remember what we were looking at from the beginning here tonight. The different ways of looking at things, right? And Orwell kind of being in the middle of these. Um, this is not a question of the Fox's philosophy versus the religion of Gloam. It's not that particular division, right? However, this is one of many situations where an event occurs, a thing happens. Um, you know, there is an event, and it could be understood one way, and it could be understood a different way. The fox is likely to understand it one way, and the priest of Ungud is likely to understand it in a different way. And here's Orowal in the middle, trying to understand what went on. Um, Orowal believed it was very ill-omened to talk about her that way. The reason, I think, that she is, her head is aching with unshed tears when she is seeing Istra going out is not only her concern about the immediate safety of Orowal um, among the people, but also um, that 
she knows again if it was ill-omened for the fox to merely say that she's prettier than Aphrodite how much worse is it for in the public square her to be Istra to be reverenced as a goddess and identified with Ungit herself right that can't be good bad things are certain to come from that Ungit is not going to Ungit isn't just going to sit there and take that right something bad is going to happen so is Orwell ready to believe that death might have come yeah yeah possibly right but again this is in a way this becomes a kind of paradigm for things that we're going to see very frequently um, through the central events of the story and that is um, that uh, things will happen and how do we understand them right in what context can we place them what um, in what frame do they make most sense should they be rightly in what frame should they rightly be placed um all right uh gonna stop now we got into chapter four that's not bad um we'll see if we can do four and five next time um chapter five is a big one um that's the confrontation between the king and the priest of ungit um yeah We'll spend some time there, um, uh, building off of some of the things that we've looked at here tonight. I doubt we'll get to chapter six. In fact, I'm not even going to fool myself. Um, make sure you've read through chapter five. In fact, I would. these chapters are short. I would suggest rereading them, if you can. Um, that's what I've been doing. I've been going back. Uh, every week I start at the beginning of the book and read through till we get to this stage. I don't know how long I'll be able to keep that up, but uh, for now, anyway, I'm going to be... Um, uh, uh, that's what I plan to do. So um, read through chapter five. Um, make sure you reread chapters four and five. Uh, and, uh, and so when we, uh, when we come back to them next week. All right. Thanks, everybody. I uh, appreciate your time tonight. Sorry I started late. And I will be back again next week. Bye now.